Good morning. It's good to see all of you here on this long week. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> long weekend Sunday. Um, it's a beautiful Sunday morning, so it's good to see all of you here. Welcome to uh, our guests. We are we're glad to have you here. We hope that you are made to feel welcome this morning. For those who are watching our service and those who are listening, thank you for joining us. It's good to have you. The bulletin lists Pastor Dean as being the worship leader this morning, but he was good enough to switch Sundays with me, so that's why I'm up here this morning. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, and that marks the 40th day since um, Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday, and it commemorates the time when he ascended into heaven. In Acts 1, verses 1 to 3, we read that during those 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples a number of times, teaching them more about the kingdom of God. So to begin, I'd like to read uh, the first three verses of Acts. Acts 1 to 3, and this is Luke speaking. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and uh, this is verse 1 now. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So as Jesus was with his disciples over these 40 days, he, he appeared to them um, on various occasions. He continued to teach them and he also spoke to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 9 to 11, we read, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him, beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come before you this morning, we are so thankful for your great love for us. You sent your son Jesus to come into the world. He was willing to suffer and die a cruel death in our place. But it didn't end there. He arose and spent another 40 days with his disciples before his ascension into heaven. Father, we thank you that all who will place their trust in you can look forward to the day when we will be with you in heaven. 
And Lord, while we wait for that time, you have asked us to continue to work, to continue your work here on earth. And so we ask, Lord, for your help and guidance as individuals and as a church, that we would be faithful to you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask Helen to come up and lead us in some singing. Good morning, everyone. We have a beautiful day, and let's start this morning with singing the song number 499. This is the day that the Lord has made. songs in your bulletin and it's called I believe we shall win let's stand for that I believe we shall win
those of you who want to sit can sit, the rest you can stay standing. The next song is number 434 in your hymnal, God of Grace and God of Glory. We will sing verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. Take a look at some of the announcements in the bulletin. Under this week at Winkler Brookteller, just a reminder that our church office will be closed tomorrow for Victoria Day. And take note of the other events happening, Women's Prayer Group, Tuesday Church Council Meeting, Men's Prayer Time Wednesday, and Youth and Young Adults on Friday. Our missionaries of the week are K and K. And uh, K&K will be uh, returning to Canada for the summer. 
they are coming back on June the 27th and will be here till August 15th. They sent an email out a few days ago um, updating uh, some of the information about them and and uh, I'd just like to read uh, just a paragraph from that email. And it says, there is literally so much going on for our family on any given day. We feel our heads and hearts are quite literally spinning some days. Between leadership roles, business, teaching, parenting older ones, a revolving door of guests in and out almost daily, it's like the fullest season we've experienced so far. Such beautiful and important things to be involved with, image bearers to love. Ask the Spirit for wisdom to know which loads are ours to shoulder and which are not. For divine power to accompany our words and deeds resulting in transformed lives, peace and joy for all. And then she, they say, we really cannot do a minute of worthwhile life here without the Spirit's power unleashed through the prayers of his people. So let's continue to remember that family there. They have a lot of stuff happening. Uh, a lot of people come to the door, a lot of people seeking their guidance and wisdom and help and friendship and a shoulder to cry on. And so let's, let's just continue to remember them. And also uh, the Zambia community, Emmanuel Menza operates a, a children's or a school for orphans. So let's continue to remember that work as well. Um, life in the church. There's uh, an event happening on Wednesday, May 31st, uh, blanket tying. Uh, so take note of that if you're interested and they're looking for anyone, men, women, anyone, all ages. And Meg Suderman is the contact, so her number is given, given there if you have any questions. Uh, Harvest Festival is looking for ushers, so if anyone uh, would like to help in that way, um, please contact Pastor Victor. Under persons with health needs, in Boundary Trails, we have Abe A. Friesen, Carolyn Ham, and Dave Weeb. In Swan Lake, uh, Mary Duick and John Suderman continue to be there. They've been there for quite some time already. And in Red River Valley Lodge is Rita Friesen. We have a thank you note to Stephanie Beattie and Brad Funk. We appreciate the work that you do with our computers on Sunday morning. So thank you very much for that. And uh, Susan, our administrative secretary, is uh, retiring. Susan has served us well for many years, and uh, we appreciate her work. And so we're looking for somebody to replace her. So. Uh, information is given there. Uh, Esther Dick would be the contact person. And next Sunday is communion, so let's uh, prepare ourselves for that. Uh, it's also a day we'll be receiving new members, so that's exciting, and we're looking forward to that. And so we'll be re receiving uh, Anne-Marie Friesen, Max Friesen, Mary Reimer, and John and Marge Zacharias into our membership. So let's, let's keep that day in prayer as well. 
There's a number of announcements under the community and other events. I'll ask you to read those on their own, on your own. There's some important announcements there, so please read through that. And then one announcement that is not in your bulletin, um, Henry Enns, the oldest brother, <coughs> excuse me, the oldest brother of Lady Zacharias, Meg Suderman, and George Enns passed away on Friday uh, at the age of 97 and funeral arrangements are pending. So let's remember that family also. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are such a great and awesome God. Lord, there are so many needs around the world and you are aware of each one. You are present everywhere, and nothing is beyond your power or your control. Father, we pray for Kay and Kay and their children as they try to be a light for you in a place where many don't know you. Their days are full, and as they expressed in their email, grant them wisdom to know which loads are theirs to shoulder and which are not. Bless their conversations and the relationships that they are building so that lives would be transformed. Father, we pray also your blessing on the work of Emmanuel Menza and his team as they operate a school for orphans in Zambia. God, we ask your guidance for our church as we seek to be faithful to you and to your word. And Lord, as we are looking to fill a couple of positions on staff, we pray that you would bring forward those people whom you would have serve in our church. And we pray, God, for those who are dealing with health needs. We pray for A. Bay Friesen, for Caroline Ham, for Dave Weeb, Mary Duick, John Suderman, and Rita Friesen. And Lord, we also pray for those who are at home and have health concerns, and we know that there are a number of those as well. And Lord, we ask that according to your will, that you would grant healing. Lord, may each one be filled with your peace and have a sense of your presence. God, we also pray for the family of Henry Ence as they uh, uh, grieve his passing, and we ask your, your strength and your comfort for them as they prepare for the funeral. Father, also as many farmers are out planting their crops, we ask your protection over them. Keep them free from, <coughs> keep them free from accidents as they put in long days. And we ask your blessing, Father, on the crops that are being planted. And as Pastor Victor brings the message this morning, God, we ask that you would give him your words to say, and that you would give us ears to hear as he shares. And now, Lord, as we give our offerings, we ask that you would bless them and that they would be used to further your work. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Ushers, I forgot to call you forward before, so you can come right now. Thank you. Our scripture passage is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 4, and we'll continue on through into verse 10. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Uh, scholars tell us that Peter is writing this letter from him as a follow-up to his first one. He's writing it from prison, and he's expecting that he's going to be executed. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Well, good morning. I hope you are, have all had a good week. Uh, we had a 
<laughs> I had a regular kind of spring week in which I then get out and do things that I haven't done for a long time. And I think uh, most days of this week I wore myself out <laughs> just trying to do things outside and whatnot all. Anyways, it was a good week. And I hope you are recovering also if you have the same experience. Well, I'm glad we're here together to worship and to hear the Word of God together. Uh, to worship the one true God, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, and the one whom we also love. Uh, when, I, when, I was, when I was listening to uh, Dennis read the, uh, the bit in Acts about Jesus ascending, then I thought about the disciples then after that, what they must have thought uh, as they were trying to uh, live out their life expecting Jesus to return at any time. Uh, all we know is soon, right? <laughs> and soon's been a long time now, but even they believed it was soon. And so they were writing letters to the churches like the one we're gonna look at today to keep the church on track, to prepare the church for the day of his coming, to be ready. <clears throat> well, the last sermon I preached from Second Peter had to do with preparing to stand. Well, what exactly did we mean by that? We were talking about standing against false teaching and false teachers. And to stand would mean to, to be firmly grounded in the word, word of God so that we know what it says, we know what it means, and then we obey it. <clears throat> we obey the teachings then not to become saved, but because we are saved. Doing what Jesus teaches is the evidence that we follow him. We have chosen to follow Jesus, and therefore we do as he does and as he teaches. This actually is the only way to know him. We cannot know him if we do not obey him. Therefore, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter says later in this letter, we must obey the teachings and do them. One thing we know about obedience to Jesus is that it can get us in trouble with the world. People are experiencing that. Christians, I think, over the centuries have always experienced that. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are all familiar with trouble. So doesn't everyone have trouble? Yet if you follow Jesus, you will have troubles that the world does not have. One is hatred. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Not that other people aren't hated, but the reason for being hated. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Following Jesus invites the hatred of the world. And sometimes you'll be surprised where that hatred comes from. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? Finding yourself 
in the displeasure of others is not a happy thing. But, where, but here Jesus encourages us to rejoice when we face these things. When we experience hatred and persecution, just because we're walking with Jesus, this assures us that we are on the right track and following our Lord, and we're in good company. The prophets of Israel and Judah experienced the very same. Another thing we will experience when we follow Jesus is attention from the devil and his horde. We will be spiritually harassed through discouragement, temptation, feelings and thoughts of defeat when we sin, depression, and doubt about our own faith or about the truth of God's word. Do you remember what Satan said to Eve? <laughs> the first thing that serpent said was this, did God actually say? To ponder that thought and go where it invites us is to begin doubting. And doubt only begets more doubt. It's not hard to see how we can how that can dismantle a person's faith and cause serious crises in a person's life. The devil is out to destroy faith, and that is the reality of living the Christian life. A theme that often surfaces in Scripture is the need to be rescued, and that's what today's passage is about. In the Psalms, we often hear the psalmist cry out for rescue. Rescue from doubt, from danger, from oppression, from bondage, and rescue from temptation. And I'm really glad those passages are there because we can all identify with those kinds of situations and we all need rescuing. We need it daily. So let's turn to 2 Peter 2 at verse 4 and look at that passage. It is set up like a mathematical formula. If this, 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 and this is true, then that is also true. And that's exactly the language that is used here. The word if seems to leave open the possibility that it may or may not have happened. And that's what we want to find out this morning. There are four ifs in this passage, uh, one in each of verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then in verse 9 is the then uh, statement. Each one of these uh, qualifying statements is followed by more detail. So if you would take out the detail, then, then the passage might be a little bit more uh, understandable uh, at, at, a, at first glance. And so it would read like this. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, if God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction, and if he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is really good news for believers and really bad news for unbelievers. So let's look at each one of these statements in full. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, dot, 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 this is an interesting statement. Is there evidence that God did such a thing? Because the statement assumes that he did. What do we know 
from the, what do we know from the Bible that affirms this statement that God did this? There must have been some kind of celestial uprising in heaven. And it must have taken place before creation because Satan was there to tempt Adam and Eve. So what happened? Well, we get a few clues from the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. From this, we understand that there already existed a place for rebellious angels. So that rebellion had already happened and that place has already been made. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, Paul asked, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, this tells us that there is a judgment coming for rebellious angels. Isaiah 14 is seen by some to offer a clue as well. It is written as a taunt against the king of Babylon, but it may also shed light on the fall of Satan. This taunt is from uh, verses 4 to 21, but I'll just read a few verses and you'll, you'll get what I mean. <clears throat> so at verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? Uh, just a side note here. Uh, the words uh, day star here are translated, um, uh, are translated here from the Hebrew word Hillel. And uh, that word means morning star or shining one. And the, the King James Version translated it as Lucifer, which means light bearer. So all given all the same kind of imagery there. And because the King James Version capitalized that word Lucifer, it has led to the idea that Lucifer was Satan's name. A few other English versions also capitalize that word, but most do not. So if you ever wonder about that, that's where that comes from. Anyways, back to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. That is a picture of what has happened to Satan. Revelation 12, verses seven to nine, uh, gives us a view, kind of the end of that celestial rebellion. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And Jesus corroborated this in Luke 10 at verse 18 when he said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
There's also another indicator in Revelation 12, 3, and 4 that may play into this. It reads like this, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Angels are sometimes symbolized by stars, and so it's possible that this indicates the number of angels under Satan's authority who got thrown down with him. And fallen angels, as I understand it, have become the demons of this world. So there's good evidence of a celestial rebellion. And what did God do about it? Did he, in fact, cast them into hell and commit them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment? There isn't an, a lot of information on this, but there is some. In Jude's letter to the church, he wrote, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, here it is, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So just as, uh, oh, sorry, I'm, there's a little bit more here. Kept until judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So with confidence, we can say that we know that God did not spare angels when they sinned and cast them into hell and chains. It did happen. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, dot, dot, dot. This is a story with which we are quite familiar. But let's just listen to God's mind about the state of the world at that time and what he was going to do about it. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, and then, and then verses 11 to 14a. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. 
And in the next chapter, Genesis 7, at verse 7, it says, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Jesus referred to this event days before his crucifixion. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So again, we have confirmation here that this if statement is talking about real events. God did not spare the ancient world when he preserved Noah. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, dot, dot, dot. Well, that also is a thing that happened, isn't it? Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned to extinction. When the households and the herds of Abram and Lot became so plentiful that they had to part ways, you remember that, right? Their, their uh, herdsmen were uh, arguing with each other about space and those kinds of things, and so they agreed to part ways. Well, at that point, uh, Lot chose the valley because it looked better to him. And Genesis 12 says it like this, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent to Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Eventually, God gives verbal expression to his concerns about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And finally, after that, that famous conversation that Abraham had with God, do you remember that? You know, if there are 50 righteous people there, are you gonna destroy it? If there are 45, and you know how that went, all the way down to 10. And God said he would not if he found 10. Well, God did pass judgment. Uh, we read in Genesis 19, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Some archaeologists have discovered sulfur balls and burnt cities in the region at the south end of the Dead Sea. It may have been lush and green when Lot moved there, but if you would go there now, you would see that it is a desolate wasteland. Nothing grows there, and nobody, nobody lives there. It is also true that Sodom and Gomorrah were used as examples of judgment that awaits the ungodly. As a judgment, Isaiah called Israel's leaders rulers of Sodom, and he referred to the children of Israel as the people of Gomorrah. Why? Because they were sinning. 
Sodom and Gomorrah were used by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Paul, and Peter, and Jude as examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And Jesus said, here's what he said, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's Luke 17, 28 to 30. So here too, we have another statement about something that did take place. Finally, the last if, verses seven to eight. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Well, I'll confess to you that I have sometimes questioned the righteousness of Lot. First of all, because when he got to Sodom and found out that the people were wicked, he didn't move away. Uh, second, he offered his daughters to the men of the town when the angels uh, had dropped in for a visit. And third, Lot lingered in Sodom when the angels told him the Lord is going to destroy this place. But the scripture says that Lot was righteous. So let's look again. I wonder if perhaps Lot demonstrated righteousness because he was willing to go with Uncle Abraham out of the land of their people and follow and go with Abraham. We also see Lot's distress when the angels visited, uh, visited him that night, right? The men of the town gathered around the house and they demanded to have them. And Lot, uh, where is that statement? Genesis 19, verses five to seven. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So Lot show, did show himself righteous in his grief over their wickedness. So Lot was righteous, and he was also rescued, as Genesis tells us. The angels struck the men of the city with blindness. They seized Lot and his wife and their daughters by the hand, led them out of the city and said, head for the hills. And he, of course, asked to go to that little city of Zoar, and they did. And we know that Lot's wife turned back when she shouldn't have, and she became a pillar of salt. So all these things happened, and Lot and his daughters were spared. So as the formula goes, if all these things we've talked about took place, then the last statement is a sure thing. If all these things happened, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Who are the godly? If you're like me, uh, I don't think of myself as being terribly godly. Or maybe you do, but 
I don't. But those who believe God, those who follow Jesus in obedience, they are the righteous. They are the godly. And who are the unrighteous? Those who do not believe God, nor follow Jesus in obedience. Now, I hope this isn't, uh, I hope this concept isn't a stumbling block for us. As imperfect as we are, and as much as we do sin from day to day, those who believe God, repent when they sin, and practice right living, these are the righteous. We are the righteous. We are the saints. And we are righteous because Jesus' blood covers the sins of those who believe. Our obedience to Jesus, then, is the evidence that we follow him, that we belong to him, and that his spirit is in us. The unrighteous, as wonderful as they may appear to be, are those who do not believe God. They do not obey Jesus, and they do not belong to him because his spirit is not in them. There are those who attempt to do righteous living as they, so that they appear to belong to Jesus, but without believing God, they are simply legalists, and their fruits betray them. We are the godly whom God rescues. If you need a little reminder about God's ability or God's commitment to rescue the godly from trials, then let me recap some of God's great rescues. God rescued Noah and his family from the flood. He rescued Jacob and his family from famine. He rescued the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. He rescued Moses from the rebels of Israel. David from King Saul. King David from his own son, Absalom. He rescued King Jehoshaphat and all Judah from the nations on the other side of the Dead Sea when God caused Judah's enemies to destroy each other. King Hezekiah and all Judah from the king of Assyria when the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 people in the camp of the Assyrians. God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from King Nebuchadnezzar when he threw them into the fiery furnace. God rescued Daniel from the cunning officials of King Darius and, of course, the lions in the den. A possessed man from his demons, Peter from prison, Paul from the Jews, believing people from their sins. There is no enemy we need fear, no temptation so great, no suffering so deep, no persecution so intense, no doubt so large that God cannot and will not rescue us from it. Paul, writing to Timothy, said this, You, however, have followed my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. 
We may not be spared our trials, but we will be rescued from them. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Brothers and sisters, since God has done all these things, we can take courage and be assured that whatever trial we face, the Lord will rescue us. Do not give up. Do not give up hope. Do not pack it in. Do not level, let the devil convince you that you are a lost cause. The Lord loves you, and he will rescue his own. Hallowed be his name. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this letter that Peter wrote. And I thank you that he did it with the hope of keeping the church ready, prepared, and faithful for the day of your return. And it served not only the church in his day, but it has served the church until this day. And Father, we take great encouragement from this passage, knowing that because of all these things which you have done, you know how to rescue us. And so, Father, we cling to that promise. Give us confidence and joy to live out our faith in you before a godless world as we look forward to the day of your return. For your word says that you will return in the same manner in which you left, and we look forward to it. Amen. I have a word for all of you. Be who God wants you to be, not what others want to see. Our last song is number 449 in your hymnal, Peace in Our Time, O Lord. We'll sing the first two, and then we'll have the benediction and see the third after that. Please stand.
Receive this benediction from Peter. Beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.